Welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty, an industry podcast for loyalty marketing professionals. I'm your host, Paula Thomas, and if you work in loyalty marketing, join me every week to learn the latest ideas from loyalty specialists around the world. This show is sponsored by Comark, a global provider of innovative software products and business services. Comark's platform is used by leading brands across all industries to drive their customer loyalty. Powered by AI and machine learning, Comark technologies allow you to build, run, and manage personalized loyalty programs and product offers with ease. For more information, please visit comark.com. So welcome to the latest episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. And today I am delighted to be talking to one of the co-authors for what I believe is perhaps this year's top publication on loyalty, which is the Spotlight series from Harvard Business Review. So Professor Dan McCarthy is the Assistant Professor of Marketing of Emory University, and he joins me today as the third in the trio of authors from those particular articles. So regular listeners will know we already had Professor Pete Fader in episode 40 talking about lots of both the academic and commercial aspects of loyalty. And in episode 42, we also had Rob Rob Markey from Bain & Company. So, Professor Dan McCarthy, first and foremost, welcome to Let's Talk Loyalty. Yeah, it's great. Great to make it a great to make it the full trio. <laughs> Absolutely, I'm so happy. I'm like I feel fully connected to the academic world now, Dan. <laughs> now that and yeah, we just had uh, this big webinar with Bain with you know, reuniting yeah. the team. So yeah, wow. so it's, uh, it's a yeah. small world. It sure is, absolutely. And I'm certainly following it very closely, and I know plenty of my listeners are as well. So in terms of your own background, Dan, um, it's amazing to see the kind of work you do. And I suppose it really gives me a lot of reassurance that we're in safe hands. So I think as we get into talking about loyalty statistics, um, it's really useful to know that you have done, I think, years and years now of research specifically on applying leading edge methodology to uh, what you've described as empirical marketing problems. And I know when we were chatting before coming on air, you told me that you've actually, in fact, today, you'll be finishing delivering your first full semester, talking about customer lifetime value over 24 individual lectures, which I think is just extraordinary. Yep, that's exactly right. Yeah, it's a full <laughs> course. The course is literally called Customer Lifetime Valuation. And uh, wow. I, I certainly, I even had colleagues uh, before I was teaching it, who were saying, Dan, are, are you like, I, I know I, I, I like customer lifetime value as much as the next guy, but uh, sure. you can teach a whole course on that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Incredible. Yeah. Peel back yeah. the onion on acquisition, retention, ordering, spend, how you do the modeling, how you think about the strategy, how you tie it to valuation, yeah. doing the customer centricity simulations, actually getting to experience it. Yeah. I need two semesters. <laughs> Well, that's brilliant. And I'm sure you'll be very happy to to come to the end of the very first course. So before we get into all of the work that you're doing, Dan, uh, as you know, we always start the show talking about your favorite loyalty statistic. And given that you are a statistician, uh, I know you have two. Um, so I'm super fascinated. So please tell us what are your favorite loyalty statistics? Yeah, one is if you use the traditional customer lifetime value formula, uh, the one that we've been taught, you know, kind of in your introductory marketing course when you're taking your MBA, that formula will often severely discount the value of your customers up to a, a factor of three. 
you know, relative to what you would get if you mm-hmm. actually used the right formula. And, yeah. and so, you know, one of the things I've often heard from some marketers is, yeah, I know this formula is not correct, but you know, <laughs> hopefully it'll be directionally accurate. It's going to sort the customers properly and it can't be that, that bad. Right. You know, maybe yeah. by 30%, right? Yeah. No. Yeah. It's, it's actually a really, really bad formula. Wow. Um, Severely so, flawed. Yeah. And, uh, and it's not one of those, it's not one of those errors that kind of cancels itself out across the customer's you know, some customer bases, the factor will be smaller than three. You know, for others, it might even be a little bit larger than three. So yeah, it may average to three, but, mm. but, you know, yeah. you basically, you know, you really would not be served well by that formula. And have updates to that formula been published, Dan, or is this what you're uh, seeking to, to educate on? Uh, even a very, very basic extension of that formula would work remarkably well. So in fact, you know, we're just talking about the customer lifetime value course that I teach. Yeah. I actually teach them uh, a formula that largely solves the problem. So could we have more sophisticated methods? Definitely. Sure. But at least it allows for kind of the fundamental error you know, that that formula implies, which is really that every single customer has the same loyalty. They all share the same retention rate. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And uh, yeah. And so even if, you know, you've got a class of undergrads, you know, yeah. uh, MBAs, you know, they're just in their second year. They haven't had a whole lot of quantitative background. Mm. To move just from one, allowing for just that one single uh, retention rate to just allowing for two. Wow. Uh, it's actually not that hard to do. You could still do it very easily in Excel. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so... So really that that's kind of gives you the bulk of the benefit of, mm-hmm. of, of stepping away from that formula. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so it's really not hard. That's why it's, it's so surprising to me why, yeah. you know, we haven't seen this being done more. Okay. My goodness. And I know you mentioned you have a second favorite loyalty statistic, Dan. Tell us exactly what is the second one? Uh, the second one, it's not quite as much of a statistic as it is of a, a an interesting empirical fact. Okay. <laughs> and and it's that the uh, companies can exhibit something called the retention smile. And uh, I find those companies that exhibit it to be particularly interesting. Um, okay. And what it is, is when you think of a retention curve, basically what a retention curve is supposed to represent is kind of the the number of customers who are still with you mm. uh, as a function of the number of months since those customers were acquired. So you mm-hmm. acquire a hundred customers and then over time, some of them peel away. Mm. And what the retention smile um, basically is, is highlighting is the fact that some of those customers can actually come back. Now, I think there's kind of meta questions about, you know, did they actually leave then? Or is it that uh, customers can have, kind of a hiatus before their purchasing tends to come back mm-hmm. upwards. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that the, you know, that that's kind of an empirical question. It depends on the data set, mm-hmm. but empirically, if you just look at the total amount of activity from a cohort, mm-hmm. it is a fact that it kind of can go down, mm-hmm. go flat and then come mm-hmm. back up again. Mm-hmm. And uh, basically if you ignore that, that lip back upwards uh, for one, you're going to even more severely discount the goodness of that cohort. Mm-hmm. And uh, and especially when we start moving into, you know, as you know, customer-based corporate valuation, which is the area of my focus, mm-hmm. uh, typically those companies will be um, severely undervalued 
because yeah, you know, companies that are growing really, really quickly, mm-hmm. you're not really going to see a whole lot of customers in that lip you know, mm-hmm. because they're acquiring so many new customers. Mm-hmm. So, so those could be really, really promising businesses mm-hmm. uh, because of this loyalty aspect of the customers. Wow. That's brilliant. And I've never heard of a retention smile. So that's definitely something that I will be exploring uh, a huge amount. Um, What I really loved actually, Dan, about, I suppose, your career already to date um, is the fact that it does span both the academic world and the commercial world. So I know you take um, statistical valuations around customer lifetime value. You've built your own companies because you're on your second one. I'd love to hear a bit about Zodiac, first and foremost, and the current company that uh, you're running with Professor Fader. Yeah, Zodiac it, it had gotten started with uh, with Professor Fader. He was my advisor in the PhD program, and uh, it, basically we were extending some of the statistical models that he had built for customer lifetime value. And um, yeah, based on one point, we're like, why don't we just make a business out of this? Wow. <laughs> Essentially, originally, yeah, we were, we were thinking about an application to help asthmatic kids. And uh, and that would have been a, a wonderful application of the models. Sure. Uh, as it turns out, the models work very well for asthmat- for the incidence of uh, taking out albuterol prescriptions for asthma. Okay. Uh, but we said you know, the traditional use case of these models is corporate. Yeah. You know, so why don't we just uh, stick to that? Okay. So, yeah, so we, you know, kind of got the team together and we had a, a co-founding team of four and, um, and made it, made a full business out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we kind of went down the traditional VC, you know, fast growth, uh, route. Wow. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So I learned so much along the way. Uh, but yeah, we, we basically sold into marketing departments. You know, so we have these great mm-hmm. statistical models. We get people onto the platform. We plug into their transactional and CRM systems. Mm-hmm. They give us the data. We mm-hmm. automatically spit out all of these insights that are driven off of mm-hmm. well-validated predictions, what the customers will do. Mm-hmm. And then you know, the head of marketing analytics can use that to say, well, you know, maybe I should target these people or not those. And um, you know, these are the the fallen angels, you know, the customers who used to be inferred to have very high value that have mm-hmm. dramatically you know, fallen in value over the past you know, three, six months. Okay. Um, and so we might have a different promotional campaign for them than for you know, other customers who've never really been very good. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was a wonderful journey. Um, grew it. Uh, one of our customers was Nike, mm-hmm. and uh, and so yeah, they basically were making this big pivot to having a more direct relationship with their customers. Sure. You know, we want to go, you know, where the puck is going to be. You know, to mm-hmm. use a Wayne Gretzky mm-hmm. phrase. And, um, <laughs> yeah, so, so basically they, they wanted, they wanted it all. <laughs> yeah. Um, so yeah, so we ended up selling to them. Um, yeah, if it wasn't for that, we would have probably just, we, we, we'd probably be talking about Zodiac right now. I'm um, sure. Yeah. Yeah. We had a, a term sheet on our desk for our A round mm. to kind of kick off the next round of growth. And, um, and it was really just because their, their offer was just too much above, um, you know, okay. the terms that we had received on the A round that we had to, you know, from a fiduciary duty standpoint, we had to go with Nike. Oh, wow. Okay. High so, quality problems, Dan. That's what I'm hearing. <laughs> yeah. But uh, yeah, I'd say the other thing is the, they've been a wonderful partner. And one of the things that uh, they had agreed to, in addition to allowing us to continue to be full-time professors, because obviously that's mm. that's kind of job number one. Sure. Um, 
yeah, we, we were able to, to carve out this use case of customer-based corporate valuation, which is really completely unrelated to you know, marketing, you know, marketing tactics, you know, sending who to send yeah. what mailer to. Uh, yeah. And it's really much more about how much is the overall company worth? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, so that's uh, kind of what kicked off starting Theta Equity Partners, which is the, yeah. uh, the second company you were referring to. Yeah. Exciting journey, my goodness. Yeah, it's, you know, we like to, I'd say you, we're in this uh, grateful position that the sort of models that we've built, yeah. you know, they do have a lot of practical relevance. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and also I'd say, especially here at Theta, you know, because this is also yeah. my main area of research study, um, it just exposes like, these are the problems that people are interested in. I mean, mm-hmm. I've learned so much about, um, you know, kind of the open problems and what matters to practitioners. Mm-hmm. And then also, they're also much more willing and able to supply data sets to be able to answer those questions. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, so it's really, in some sense, it's been an accelerant to my research, not okay. not a distraction. Wow. Um, but wow. Yeah. yeah drawing, drawing that fine line, you know, I think it's, um, <laughs> you have to be diligent totally. about it. Sure. Yeah, I can hear how busy you must be. But what I loved actually, Dan, was um, just the whole idea that your research is helping, I suppose, the worlds of marketing and finance really start to translate things for each other. And I loved your insight, actually, when we talked before that it seems that the accounting profession hasn't really caught up with the underlying reality that if you're going to run marketing activity, the costs will be incurred in the short term. The benefits may take longer and be delivered over time, which is, is blindingly obvious to, to most of us, but it is super hard to quantify and to have that conversation with people in a different department who maybe have different short-term KPIs. So it sounds like you're seeing this throughout all of the work you're doing. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. Uh, you know, companies, they they acquire customers today. They yeah. have to expense that immediately. They yeah. get this ongoing stream of revenue from the mm-hmm. customers after they're acquired. Yeah. And and the big problem is, you know, so people say, oh, you know, we need to get the customers onto the balance sheet then and because mm-hmm. uh, they're an asset. And philosophically, I agree. Customers are an asset of the firm. Sure. Practically speaking, it's going to be impossible to get the accounting standards boards to do that. Totally. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. so I think the, the solution, and, and in fact, the CFO won't want to do that because mm-hmm. from ta- for tax purposes, mm-hmm. they'll, they'll probably want to depress uh, current period income because it's yeah. better from a you know, a net present value of your tax liability standpoint. So okay. that no, yeah. very few people actually want that. I think the main thing that we want is transparency about the value of the customers. Mm-hmm. And and we don't yeah. need to have customers on the, on the balance sheet to do that. What mm-hmm. we need is we need the right set of simple measures that mm-hmm. summarize how the customers are doing, you mm-hmm. know, how, how they're repeating, how yeah. many customers we're bringing in, you know, the economic value that we're driving from them. Mm-hmm. And it, and if the company were to disclose those measures, investors are going to have all that they need to mm. be able to bake that into their valuation model. Wonderful. So, yeah. Yes. Yeah, so that's the fundamental claim that we would make. <clears throat> mm. 
And I would definitely reference the Harvard Business Review article that I've already mentioned. So again, I've already linked to that one before, but I'll make sure it's there again. And funny when I was rereading it today, Dan, the the particular case that you mentioned with Revolve and their IPO, um, I know that's an extraordinary company. And actually, I wasn't a customer of the company when, um, when I first read the article. But I think because I was researching it for the podcast, it's now come up on my Facebook feed. And now I'm buying overpriced dresses. So <laughs> I have to say it is a brilliant business. So so any any ladies listening, definitely go and look at Revolve. But um, in all seriousness, that the metrics that you mentioned, Dan, in terms of understanding the valuation of a company like Revolve, what are the four key inputs that you're saying really should be transparently shared by companies like Revolve for investors to get a full sense of their true value? Yeah, nothing that most of these companies aren't already disclosing at, at some point. Well, maybe not every company, but a bunch of companies. Okay. And uh, so the four behaviors that we really want to pin down are acquisition, mm-hmm. retention, mm-hmm. ordering, spend. Mm-hmm. How many customers are you bringing in? How long mm-hmm. are they staying? How many orders are they placing? And how much are they spending on those orders? Mm-hmm. So those are the four things that we need to know. Mm-hmm. And so there's the question of, all right, so how can we best get that information? And mm-hmm. And we're not going to reinvent the wheel. Uh, Mm. What we found through our work is uh, a lot of the disclosures that some companies are already providing at some points in time are Mm. totally enough. Mm -hmm. So Revolve Clothing is a perfect example. Uh, They just directly disclose every quarter, this is how many customers we acquired. And and they also disclose this thing that we uh, endearingly now call the C3, which is the customer cohort chart. And what it represents is cohort by cohort. So... um, Group the customers by when they were first acquired. Okay. And then show the total amount of revenues that you got in subsequent periods for those cohorts. Okay. And so, yeah. So over time, you know, the the total height of the bar represents total sales, but we're kind of chopping it up by acquisition cohort. And that's just telling us so much about actually all those processes, acquisition, retention, ordering, and spend. Mm. So, so that is a wonderful disclosure that many, many companies are already disclosing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we just have had this slew of, of new companies that are stating mm-hmm. their intention to IPO, including mm-hmm. DoorDash, Airbnb, and, mm-hmm. and Affirm. Mm-hmm. And all three in, in one form or another disclose that chart. So again, we're not trying to ask for things that companies aren't already disclosing. Mm. What, what we're doing is, is we're hoping that more companies disclose them mm-hmm. and that they disclose them more regularly. So not just in their pre-IPO prospectus. Okay. We want to see that being disclosed every single quarter or at the very least once a year in the mm. annual report. Mm. And, uh, and if we could get that, yeah. you know, we consider that to be a win. So, yeah, so it's, it's disclosures like that. You know, obviously, you know, for orders, if they just disclose to- total, total orders over time, you mm-hmm. know, which is, again, a very common metric that Revolve and yeah. Wayfair and many other companies disclose already. Mm. And then revenue, you know, mm-hmm. we get revenue. Companies have to disclose that every period. <laughs> so <Yeah. laughs> in terms of pinning down the spend process, yeah. We get that kind of for free, you know, as long as the companies are providing some some amount of disclosure about the others. Okay. Okay. So, so that's it. You know, there's really not not a whole lot to it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not competitively sensitive because again, you know, these are all disclosures that yeah. many yeah. companies are already providing, and we're not asking for you know competitively sensitive information. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, we really we feel that this is kind of strikes that just right balance where companies they'll feel 
okay with disclosing it because it's not giving away the farm. Mm. On the flip side, investors are getting a tremendous amount of information. So their valuation yeah. models will be greatly enhanced. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I think that that's the sort of, those are the sort of trade-offs that we'll be needing to make when we're thinking about, mm. um, you know, what disclosures to propose to, mm. you know, FASB, uh, the SEC or their mm. international counterparts. Okay. And then, you know, if you think about the audience of this show, Dan, um, you know, we're generally running structured points-based loyalty programs, lots of them in retail, whether it's e-commerce or traditional retail. What do you see, like, you know, would you attribute a huge amount um, of the, the work that we do as an industry to driving those, those you know, customer assets? Very much so. Yeah, and in fact, yeah, the I think a lot of the work that that we've been talking about is a way to get much needed respect to the marketers and power to the marketers, but then also accountability to the marketers. So, yeah, yeah, I think for quite a while it's been harder than it should be to to really pin down. This is exactly the value that's being created by marketing. Mm. But what everyone will fully agree on is it's the marketing department that kind of owns those customer relationships. You know, they're, they're really, they're the ones that are in charge of managing the customer portfolio over time. So, yeah. So this work is just a way to be able to say, this is how the goodness of the customers has been evolving. We really care about that. We Mm -hmm. can show that it's extremely important. Mm -hmm. And so, so we should be giving them more responsibility, Mm. but again, it's giving us a tool to be able to hold them uh, more accountable as well. Absolutely. And to our our comment earlier, Dan, it also gives us the shared language because what I've talked about on this show many times already is, you know, just the fact that it should be a C-suite conversation. And I really believe with people like you and and Pete and and Rob driving those conversations, it's no longer just sitting within the marketing department. I do believe that's where it suddenly becomes much more relevant. And I suppose actually that brings me on to, you know, the current year and the impact of COVID from a statistician's perspective, would you have any insights in terms of, of, of what's changing behavior-wise? Well, certainly one thing that we're seeing, uh, well, actually, maybe if I could just kind of close with one point about the loyalty programs, because oh, I know please. that you know, yeah. it seems to be, you know, it's a particular interest on the show. Sure. And this was uh, something that we've been spending a lot more time thinking about recently. You know, we, we have this valuation hat that we have been wearing um, almost, ex- you know, not perfectly exclusively, but you know, very, very heavily because that's been the, the focus of data. Yeah. And, uh, but we think that this work has a tremendous implication f- for the management of the customers as well. Mm-hmm. And uh, the way that we'll go about framing the value of some sort of a marketing tactic is we, we have our model for uh, kind of the, the baseline. You know, mm. If the company was not to pursue this measure, mm-hmm. this is our best guess of how the customer base will evolve, how many purchases they'll make, et cetera, et cetera. Wow. You're kind of broken down along those four dimensions. Sure. And so then the question is, you know, what impact did a particular program have? Mm-hmm. And so then what, what this can do is it can give us kind of the, the baseline off of which to measure the value of that program. And so do we, do we expect acquisitions to be higher or lower? Do we expect mm-hmm. retention to be higher or lower? Mm-hmm. Yeah, is it a program? Is it some sort of uh, a fee that's going to be charged? And so then if there's a fee, then we you know, have yeah. a very good sense for the amount of revenue that we'll get from, mm-hmm. uh, from the fee. Mm. Uh, so this is a way to be able to quantify kind of the, the value of that, uh, of that initiative. Mm-hmm. And I think you know, t- to your point about 
creating a common language. Mm. Now we can suddenly think about a marketing tactic in the same way that a finance professional would think about a project, a capital project. Mm, mm. And I think by, by speaking that language, you know, whether it's a loyalty program that we're initiating or, mm. you know, we want to change some of the features of the loyalty program, mm-hmm. the idea would be you can run some sort of an experiment, use that to get some sense for how those uh, four drivers are changing Mm-hmm. And and then use that to create a, a project finance based argument that you can present to the CFO and say, mm-hmm. well, if we did this, this will be the initial investment. This will be the payback period. This will be the net present value. This is going to be the mm-hmm. the internal rate of return. Mm-hmm. And I think that's going to be much more likely to to get um, you know, to yeah. basically pass the CFO's <laughs> um, pass yes. the CFO's desk to to get totally. through. Yeah, to get the scrutiny. No, I love that. And again, from my own MBA, which, as you know, is 10 years ago now, you know, we were taught exactly those kind of concepts. I do believe, you know, it's it's very sophisticated, um, but increasingly important. So I know everybody in my industry shares a love of customers and customer centricity. Um, and sometimes we just need maybe more, um, more training and more education, in fact, which is exactly what you guys are doing. So, you know, when we when we do, you know, talk at the end, I'd love to get any guidance that you have in terms of people following your work to keep up to date with these kind of conversations? Yeah, I think, you know, in addition to the training, it's also, I think it's mostly just if you understand that philosophy, which is hopefully something that everyone can kind of intuitively gets. Totally. Then if you have the right people on the team or the right, you know, external partner, you know, that yeah. that can help kind of translate that. And, yeah. um, and and maybe the first few times, you know, you need that that outside help, but then over time, it kind of becomes part of the muscle memory, and yeah. then you can kind of just do do it all yourself. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So I think you know, you don't have to to learn everything before you can get started. I think if you you know have the right people on the team, yeah, uh, you, you'd be able to kind of generate those quick wins and, and get the mm. and get the ball rolling. Absolutely. Great stuff. Um, so um, the next one, uh, sorry, we, we didn't finish on one of the points. What was my, <laughs> I got totally wrapped up in that yeah. one. Yeah, COVID, that was it. Tell me, Dan. Yeah. yeah. So actually I just did, because uh, yeah, a lot of people, they'll, they'll show these, and everyone's probably read those popular media articles. You have the effect of COVID and they see some chart of sales for yeah. you know, restaurant meal delivery companies. The sales are going up or yeah. restaurant sales, those are moving down. Sure. And uh, <laughs> and certainly that that's all well and good. But yeah. what I'm wondering as a customer person is yeah. you know, what's like, what's going on with the customer behavior? Yeah. And, um, and so I, I took a look, actually, there was uh, this credit card panel data company called Second Measure. Okay. And I just said, hey, hey um, they're, they're friends of mine. Um, they gave me this data on, on Wayfair and on Blue Apron. Okay. So Wayfair is this online uh, e-commerce only furniture company. Okay. And, uh, and Blue Apron is a, a meal kit company. Yeah. So you know, every period you pay your regular fee, you get yeah. the, the box of ingredients and mm-hmm. you use that to prepare your meal more quickly than you otherwise would. Sure. I said, just give me all the, basically, give me a lot of the granular data for these firms. And I'd love to just take a look and I'll write something and obviously sing your praises in the post. Sure. Um, So yeah, it it culminated in this little article that I wrote uh, maybe a couple of weeks ago, Mm -hmm. uh, just comparing and contrasting, like what happened with these firms? Yeah. And uh, and it was really interesting. What we saw was for both of them, uh, there were a lot of people who were stepping their toe in the water for the first time. Okay. So there were a lot of new acquisitions. That, okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
they were kind of acquisitions were going along one trajectory, the COVID hits and boom, you just okay. see this yeah. bump upwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was definitely noticeable across both of them. Mm-hmm. Um, at Wayfair, we also saw this big boost to repeat business from all of their existing customers. Wow. So again, it was really interesting to see, you know, kind of, as you'd expect, there wasn't really much of a retention smile, <laughs> kind of the, <laughs> go back to the original uh, you yeah. Know, yeah. idea we were mentioning in it, yes. two facts of the day. <laughs> um, so it was just kind of going down and down and down. Again, as you expect, you acquire customers, yeah. you get the most orders when they were first acquired and then it kind of falls. Um but, but then we hit COVID time and it's as if the trajectory completely changed and you saw this camel-like hump. Um, okay, wow. Yeah, where it just kind of bumped up again across all of them. And so mm-hmm. we were seeing um, basically you know, 100%, 150% uh, growth in the amount of business that they were getting relative to the, what they would have gotten. Wow. So, uh, so very, very significant increases in activity at, at Wayfair. Yeah. Now at, at Blue Apron... Uh, we didn't really see that. <laughs> so okay. even like people who had been using Blue Apron, um, they were just kind of continuing to use them in the usual way. There was okay. no uh, yeah. no bump there. Um, okay. So again, it, what it's doing is it's saying, all right, you know, we're seeing the sales boost, but, mm-hmm. but where is it coming from? Mm-hmm. And, um, and what this is telling us is I think a lot of consumers right now, because they're cooped up at home, mm-hmm. um, they know they can't go to the stores. They usually go. Mm. They're they're kind of playing the field more. Yeah. Uh, and they're trying a lot of different brands that they wouldn't have tried if if we weren't in COVID times. Mm. Um, and then at some at some businesses, you know, especially industries like furniture, where mm-hmm. literally eighty six percent of all furniture purchasing used to happen in stores. Now yeah. they don't have that option anymore. Yeah. Well you become kind of the, the only game in town mm-hmm. there. You'll see existing customers placing a lot more orders, mm-hmm. but you know, that in general um, for those existing customers, I think the trends can be a little bit more nuanced mm-hmm. <laughs> depends on the category. Absolutely. Yeah, they're great insights. And I've certainly been trying more myself online. I don't know about you, Dan, but um, things like, um, you know, juices. So, you know, I think we're all becoming more health conscious. And yet I don't want to go to the store and, you know, risk making contact, you know, in order to get those. So I've been subscribing, for example, to um, to particular products like that. So I definitely think there is a willingness. Um, I do also think, though, there's um, in some ways a regression to just trusted brands. So I think, you know, you really do see people, I'm hearing anyway, lots of people kind of going, okay, we trust these guys. They've always taken care of us. So I think that the level of trust required, and maybe it's an opportunity for those newly acquired customers as well. I do think they expect much, much more than they have in the past. So um, so I think there's lots of insights coming through. So um, really interesting to hear that you're doing a lot of work in that space. Yeah, if you're direct to consumer brand, mm-hmm. it's a really this is a, a very crucial time for you. I think yeah. if you leave a very good first impression, yeah. there's a lot of people who'll be willing to give you a try. Mm-hmm. And then the question is, was it a good experience? Mm-hmm. And uh, and so this is kind of their moment of opportunity that um, yeah. it would not have come around, or it would have come around at at significant expense. And lots of Facebook ads. <laughs> totally. Um, yeah. So yes, I, I got to admit, for me, I'm certainly. I've been ordering a lot more at off of restaurant delivery companies. So I'm, uh-huh. I'm probably now a customer of all of those restaurant totally. meal delivery from like DoorDash and, you know, Grubhub and Postmates. Yeah. Um, 
but uh, but certainly, you know, my trusted brand, Amazon, uh, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm doubling down on, I'm probably tripling down on them. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, the other big one, I just moved into a new house this past Thursday. Congratulations. And I, I got to say, you know, yeah. the purchase of the home, this was in part, I, I think there was a COVID part of it that- oh. Yeah, I have a three-year-old child at home and okay. you know, to have the big backyard. And um, yeah, in general, there's just a lot of appeal to having a little bit more space than uh, than I had before. Yeah. So, so yeah, just there's so many ways that consumer behavior is changing. I think that the million-dollar question right now is, there's really, I think there's two main million-dollar questions. One is, what happens after covid is gone. Totally. You know, we have the vaccine now. Mm-hmm. Let's roll forward the clock to summer or mm-hmm. fall of mm-hmm. next year. Yeah. You know, we know that people um, you know, will kind of be changing their behavior in some ways. Mm-hmm. How much will they be going to, you know, the mm-hmm. restaurant meal delivery companies? Sure. Don't know. Yeah. Uh, so I think that's a big empirical question. Mm-hmm. I think the other big one that's also really underappreciated is um, how things look on the supply side. So I think everyone tends to obsess about, you know, where is consumer demand going to be, you know, mm-hmm. how's that going to change? And that, you know, that, that's very much the demand side of the equation, but I think we're seeing tremendous changes on the supply side, both in terms of uh, existing incumbents building out their e-commerce business. So now they're able to supply that market a lot more than before. Okay. And what effect is that going to have on all the, the DTC single brand companies that sell in just one category? Mm-hmm. Uh, I think there'll, there'll be a lot more competition there. Mm-hmm. I think the other one is <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, stores that are getting shut down permanently right sure. now. Sure. Yeah. Restaurants, even some furniture company stores, uh, a lot of bankruptcies and liquidations. And, mm-hmm. and so there's kind of this other argument where it's more along the lines of, well, you know, we know that spending will continue to be in this category. Mm-hmm. Uh, where's that share of wallet going to go now, mm-hmm. now that the supply side is so different from before. Yeah. And that could also, even if you didn't really change, you could get a ton more business just because you don't yeah. have as many competitors around. Well, it's funny, actually, Dan, because I was listening back to the episode uh, with with Rob um, just speaking at a conference recently, and we were talking about net promoter score. And we had noticed, or I had certainly been asking him that Walgreens, for example, their NPS was at minus four. And I was super confused. And that was the best in the industry. Um, So I'm like going, okay, what does that mean about Walgreens in terms of its loyalty? And Rob was very much going, it's ripe for disruption. This industry is ripe for disruption. And to your point exactly now, Amazon Pharmacy has just been launched last week. And I'm pretty sure that you, for example, would be a prime customer to literally go now and maybe not go to your Walgreens store anymore and and just go with Amazon Pharmacy. It's incredible. Yeah, I I fully agree. I think Mm. that's uh, finding industries where the NPS tends to be low across the entire category. Yeah. And finding some way to disrupt that. Totally. I think uh, you know, yeah. that's, that is the markings of a good business. Absolutely. Along those lines, I'd say too, I I think there's a lot of debate about the grocery delivery businesses. And yeah. I, I certainly, I, I see both sides of the argument. You know, okay. um, some people are saying they're waking up to the convenience of being able to just click a few buttons, mm-hmm. getting your list together and then just having the, the, the groceries delivered to your door and how some of that won't go away. Mm. Um, I personally, I I've tried and mm. during the heat, you know, during the worst of COVID, yeah. we were using them a number of times. So we kind of forced kicking and screaming mm. and we had a number of very bad service experiences. Sure. I did too. And 
Yeah. yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I'm kind of saying if you force me to, you know, if you put me in the middle of a pandemic, sure, <laughs> I'll, I'll use it. Uh, yeah. But, but if I'm not, I'm going to go back to the grocery store. Mm. So, yeah. So that's one where I, I don't know. Yeah, I think maybe the truth might be a little bit in the middle. Absolutely. And for me, I think, Dan, what will come through is an increasing focus on the power of the brand, because, you know, my poor grocery experiences have tended to be in non-branded categories, you know, like the fruit and veg or whatever. Um, Mm -hmm. So, you know, I've certainly seen brands like Coca-Cola now, admittedly pre-COVID, but again, focusing on building loyalty programs. um, Clearly, they have one of the strongest brands in the world anyway. But for me, you know, grocery online really only works when I know 100% what I'm getting. And so the trust factor is totally taken care of. So yeah, then it's down to the logistics. And, you know, you mentioned um, furniture shops earlier, Dan. So I think it's totally you know, what's happening here in Dubai. Uh, You cannot get a villa, for example, at the moment, the demand has gone through the roof because everybody wants to be outdoors. But actually my experience trying to buy furniture online has been a little ropey, let's say. (laughs) Well, maybe that's, uh, you know, only initially in COVID. So hopefully now it's all kind of settling down. No, it hasn't. No, no. (laughs) I'm I'm now the prime consumer because I just bought this big house. And so I need to get all this new furniture. And You know, now I think the, the 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 thing that they're blaming on is supply chain disruption, and I do think there is an element to that. But of course, yeah, you make a purchase, you don't hear about it, you have to literally call them up multiple times to figure sure. out. where's my furniture? Oh, you know, (laughs) it's going to be coming in March. (laughs) Yeah. And you're like, I have a three-year-old who needs a bed. What are we going to do about that? (laughs) And you you told me it was going to come earlier than that. So yeah, so that's a a category where again, to be able to get the look and the feel of it, to to sit on the mattress and then to know you have the certainty that the product is in the store. You know, you have the ability to ship it from the store. (laughs) My goodness. Yeah. Yeah. So many factors driving loyalty, huh? Yeah, I think that's uh, it. It keeps us gainfully employed for for quite a while, hopefully. <laughs> Definitely does, Dan. The other one I wanted to ask you about was um, very recent news, and I suppose because you work with with so many in the you know the VC community and just kind of the the equity side, um, there was a particular company I think I mentioned to you that was recently launched that is basically giving its customers equity as rewards. So um, I'd love to just hear any any thoughts you have on this as a new model for loyalty programs? Yeah, I think it, it sounds very interesting. Um, you know, certainly, I can, I can understand how if you gave even a really token small amount of equity to somebody that they'll feel a, a compulsion to buy from that brand mm-hmm. that they would not otherwise have under any other scheme. So, yeah. so certainly I could see there being this tremendous return on investment to that piece of equity. Okay. Um, I think at that point, the devil's in the details. So figuring out, you know, I saw that they had to register as a broker dealer. So you need to have a way of, you know, first pricing, yeah. pricing the companies uh, when the, when the stock goes into the account, what are the rules around mm. uh, how long they need to hold it before they're able to sell it? Mm. Um, presumably you'd want them to hold it for a while because <laughs> if you <laughs> sure. yeah. hold it immediately, then, uh, then it will remove that incentive. Mm. Um, so yeah, a lot of question marks. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, I can see it being logistically complicated because mm. yeah. opening up a brokerage account is not the yeah. easiest process in the world. So they'll need to mm. really think about that. Um, but you know, if they're able to, hopefully those would be surmountable issues. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's especially if there was a way to offer something like this to 
uh, to the whale customers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this, the big ones where, yeah. you know, for them, I could see the dollars really being there. Um, totally. Yeah. For the little, the, the little winnows, mm. you know, certainly if, if you have to, you know, the, come along for the ride mm-hmm. and uh, maybe some of the little winnows will become mm-hmm. the whales in the mm-hmm. future. But mm-hmm. yeah. yeah, I think there, the ROI might be a little harder to justify mm-hmm. relative yeah. to the cost of the program, but, sure. um, but certainly it gives you a lot to work with, you know, having that, uh, yeah. if you can really buy into the fact that, uh, you know, a $5 equity investment will create a hundred dollars mm. worth mm. Of, of new spend. Mm. That's a, that's a powerful thing to be able to fall back on. Absolutely. Yeah. And for listeners, the name of the company, it's called Bumped. It was literally launched in November 2020. And I suppose, again, it's it's high publicity and lots of fundraising just closed. Uh, but literally, I suppose, you know, when you start saying that, you know, customers stop shopping with competitors um, as a marketeer, that's obviously a dream outcome. Uh, as you said, the devil is in the detail, Dan, but and I'm sure there's very much a, a very specific um, sociodemographic, I suppose, that will even be excited by a proposition like this, but I suppose I love innovation. So um, yeah, it's just lovely to see kind of a, a brand new idea um, that, that's coming out in the middle of a, an otherwise chaotic year. Yeah, there's a lot of really interesting innovations. Uh, you know, so that, that's kind of the one side where you're giving a bit of equity to the customer. Yeah. Uh, another thing I've seen very innovative that's just starting to happen right now is yeah. uh, selling a bit of the equity to investors. And, and by that, I mean, imagine that uh, you're a customer of a certain company and you mm-hmm. buy a whole bunch of business. Imagine it's something like Blue Apron, where you've mm-hmm. got yeah. this monthly recurring revenue. Mm-hmm. Um, if you had a way of being able to sell ownership of part of that mm. contract, that customer mm. contract to a third party, mm. um, you know, how, how useful that could be to that company mm. like Blue Apron. Mm. So we're actually seeing uh, companies do that now. There's a company called Pipe where mm-hmm. uh, they're basically doing this for software as a service okay. contracts. Mm-hmm. So again, it's the same idea as like a Blue Apron, but okay. you know, just a different different industry. Mm. And they're literally selling those customer contracts to investors. Uh, they're doing it in an incentive compatible way so that the companies are, you know, they want to maintain the value of those contracts, but what mm-hmm. it allows the companies to do is to grow their business uh, much more quickly because mm-hmm. it's expensive to grow. And so totally. just the act of growth itself mm-hmm. can force the company to mm-hmm. raise a whole bunch of dilutive equity. Mm-hmm. What this offers those companies uh, a way to it basically offers them a way to be able to grow by selling mm-hmm. you know, part of their customer contracts and mm-hmm. use that to finance the growth instead of having to yeah. you know, give up 30% of their equity okay. to a whole bunch of the outside VC investors each time. Okay. Yeah. Creative. Yeah, huh? so, I like it. Yeah. It's, you know, just innovations that all kind of make sense that are all revolving around um, yeah. taking different aspects of that customer relationship mm-hmm. and just uh, doing something with them. Mm-hmm. Brilliant stuff, Dan. Um, my final question was around the age-old principle of Pareto, which I think we all learned, I don't know, in high school or something. I don't know. It's a very simple principle. But I did see you wrote a paper um, which said instead of uh, the 80-20, perhaps now it's the 70-20 principle, which, you know, even without being particularly strong mathematically, I found uh, more questions than answers. So I'd love to hear what that paper was about and, and, and what's happening with the Pareto principle. 
Yeah, so the inception story on that is uh, there's a, a fellow by the name of Byron Sharp who wrote a book called How Brands Grow. I'm sure yeah. many yeah. of the listeners will have read his book. Sure. And uh, he has some wonderful insights. Mm. Uh, but one of the principles that he really falls back on very heavily is that you really don't need to do surgical customer acquisition. It's not really going to move the pin very much. What you want is to grow market share. Mm. And that's what creates double jeopardy, you know, that mm-hmm. uh, you get this double benefit by being you know, kind of big in the category. And, um, and so he'll throw out, I think he had said at some point that it's more like 50, 20, that the best 20% of your customers will bring about 50% of your sales. And the point was, yeah, 50%, you know, reasonably big number, but it's Mm. certainly nowhere close to 80, 20. Mm. And, um, and we found that that uh, was kind of a little bit too, that that wasn't quite right. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I wanted to kind of dive in because yeah, mm-hmm. we'd done all this work at Zodiac mm-hmm. and we were seeing these companies where mm-hmm. you know, they were driving a lot more of their value from a smaller proportion of their customers. And so, yeah. yeah. yeah so again, rounding it out, going back to second measure, I said, mm-hmm. Hey, second measure, <laughs> can you give me this data set <laughs> yeah. uh, that can just allow me to prove this out? You know, just yeah. look at customer behavior. So, so they did. Um, and what we found was it, it's more like 70, 20, that if you take okay. the best 20% of your customers yeah. um, outside the CPG category, so this is more like direct to consumer, mm-hmm. um, which is an important distinction. I think a lot of the work that uh, yeah. you know, Professor Sharp had done was with CPG. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we found it was more like 70, uh, 70, 20 than either 50, 20 or 80, 20. Okay. Um, Okay. But, but that there was a lot of um, interesting variation across companies. And so we spent a lot of time uh, okay. kind of diving into that as well. Okay. But I'm relieved to know that there's we're not turning the model on its head. We can still go after our super fans and really look after our top customers and that the principle still applies. It just depends what vertical you're in. Well, yeah, I'd say the, the other silver lining, which... I'm just, I'm surprised that I hadn't heard of this before was when you move from sales, like sales is not what puts money in your pocket. What puts money in your pocket is profit. You know, companies, mm-hmm. they want to generate profit. They don't want to generate, they want to generate sales to the extent that it creates profit. Sure. And as soon as you move to contribution profit, then all bets are off. Actually, 80-20 is, is conservative. It's mm-hmm. probably more like 90, 95-20, maybe wow. even above 120. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. all of those other 80% of your customers, you're, you might be losing money on them, actually. Sure. Yeah. So again, we talk about super fans. Mm-hmm. This really you know, plays, plays into that, that argument. Mm-hmm. Uh, just empirically, I think, even though we didn't have as much data in the specific uh, data set that Second Measure had supplied to us, in every example that we've seen yeah. where we had profit data, mm-hmm. uh, the ratio was significantly more concentrated uh, for profit than sales. My goodness. Wow. And again, certainly because I'm in B2B, Dan, as you can imagine, you know, we're laser focused on, you know, where where's your profit coming from? And uh, sometimes, you know, clients are not profitable. So plenty of consultants I know would literally have to exit and, and fire the client, <laughs> which is controversial. But, you know, when we do have that laser focus and the opportunity cost, absolutely, it's super important to have the right business. And um, so totally agree. So thank you for those insights. Um, we've covered a huge amount today, Dan. Is there anything else? I know we haven't maybe given enough to corporate-based company valuations. Do you want to maybe give us a closing uh, summary on where you're going with that work? Uh, well, I think yeah, we covered it a pretty decent amount, but yeah, I think there's a, obviously a, a whole bunch of new dimensions that I'm exploring through the academic work and, mm. and that we're exploring through Theta. Mm. Uh, so through Theta, 
we have a new software platform that we're going to be creating. Uh, it's just going to be maybe a month and a half from now uh, before it's launched. Wow. What it's going to allow us to do is uh, basically to take in transactional data in much mm-hmm. the same way that Zodiac had done and mm-hmm. be able to spit back out all these CBCV outputs, um, <laughs> much the same way that Zodiac had spat out Brilliant. the marketing outputs. And okay. so what we hope is it's going to allow us to you know, even further democratize access to uh, to these sorts of, of methodologies. So I think there's a lot of brands where Imagine you're that fast-growing D2C brand that you don't have a whole lot of budget, uh, but you really want to know how are my customers doing. Mm-hmm. Um, to pay like a bespoke uh, kind of consulting type fee arrangement might be mm-hmm. yeah. a bit more than your budget can handle. But mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I think by reducing our costs, we may be able to reach a price point that mm-hmm. would be appealing to them. In terms of the academic work, uh, you, you mentioned the impact of COVID. I am, I'm actually right now maybe a month away from having uh, a paper that's specifically focused on what is the causal effect of COVID on mm-hmm. customer behavior. And okay. uh, we're taking data from another credit card panel data company called mm-hmm. uh, Earnest Research. They're kind of mm-hmm. the, the biggest credit card panel data firm. Mm-hmm. And we're using their data to, in conjunction with a whole bunch of other data sources, you know, geolocation data, mm-hmm. um, you know, employee uh, time tracking data mm-hmm. uh, to be able to kind of say COVID caused this effect in customer behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So I'm very excited to to be able to release that. But um, again, probably more like a month or so before before those results will be out. My goodness! So for people who want to follow your work, Dan, where is the best place for them to to uh, to link in or connect with you? Yeah, uh, no pun intended. LinkedIn would be one. Perfect, uh, so great. Certainly, a, yes. a Daniel McCarthy on <laughs> there. that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other one would be Twitter. Yeah. So okay. I, I use I use both a lot. Okay. Um, LinkedIn is where I'll tend to put the articles. I'll also put uh, some of the longer form, you know, posts. Okay. Uh, on Twitter, it gets some of my more speculative posts. So I'll certainly cross post a little bit, but okay. you'll see a lot more of the, the you know, the, the small tidbitty type uh, content that uh, just happens to come to mind one day and I'll just put it out there. Okay. So, yeah, so definitely do, do follow me on both. Yeah, D underscore Macar, M-C-C-A-R is mm-hmm. my Twitter handle. Okay, great. And we'll link to that as well in the show notes. Is there anything else you wanted to mention, Dan, before we wrap up? I say, yeah, thanks so much for, for having me. This has been wonderful. And yeah, as you can tell, I, I tend to focus traditionally a little bit more on the corporate valuation side. But yeah, as you can see, there's just so much to, to think yeah. through, so many implications for you know, how it ties to the management side. So mm-hmm. I really hope that uh, you know, we can kind of continue to build this bridge and um, mm-hmm. you know, over the course of the next year or so, just make this common language, both for marketers and for finance people. <laughs> wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'll certainly be keen to, to check in with you um, in the future and stay in touch, Dan, because um, I will again say I'm super grateful you guys are, are doing this work and thinking it through for us as loyalty professionals. So from my side, I just want to say Daniel McCarthy, Assistant Professor of Marketing at Emory University. Thank you so much from Let's Talk Loyalty. This show is sponsored by The Wise Marketeer, the world's most popular source of loyalty marketing news, insights, and research. The Wise Marketeer also offers loyalty marketing training through its Loyalty Academy, which has already certified over 170 executives in 20 countries as certified loyalty marketing professionals. 
For more information, check out thewisemarketeer.com and loyaltyacademy.org. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Let's Talk Loyalty. If you'd like me to send you the latest show each week, simply sign up for the show newsletter on letstalkloyalty.com and I'll send you the latest episode to your inbox every Thursday. Or just head to your favorite podcast platform, find Let's Talk Loyalty and subscribe. Of course, I'd love your feedback and reviews and thanks again for supporting the show.